Well, good morning, everyone. It's really lovely to be with you. Uh, Shall we pray as we begin? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you know us, that you love us, and that you call us to be united with you and to live lives that reveal your light. So would you come and speak to us today? We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you are someone who is spending any time at the moment kind of idly thinking about the sort of things you might do when lockdown is over. Speaking personally, I've generally tried to avoid this train of thought because it's not been uh, feeling very positive at times. Uh, But this week, I was kind of jolted into it by seeing a friend post a picture of them very ordinarily, it seemed, on a train. And suddenly I thought, Oh yes, a train. I used to go on those occasionally. I remember that. And of course, my my mind started wandering and I thought, yes, I know where I want to go on a train. I want to go to London. I want to walk in those beautiful parks. And then suddenly I knew exactly what I wanted to do on this day. I wanted to walk through the park to Trafalgar Square and go into the National Gallery. Because quite often, if I'm in London, I will try and nip in to see a particular favourite painting of mine. It's uh, by Hans Holbein, and it's called The Two Ambassadors. And uh, hopefully you can see it on your screen now. Uh, Believe it or not, uh, it really spoke to me in my late teens. It probably uh, sparked an interest, a niche interest, it has to be said, in Tudor portraiture, such that a few years later I spent a whole year analysing Tudor portraits and uh, the pictures of Tudor kings and queens on the fronts of Bibles, believe it or not. But uh, the reason that I invite you to look at this picture is that there is something hidden in plain sight. The first time I saw it, someone said to me, have you seen the skull? Now, there are all sorts of interesting objects to see in that painting, uh, and all of them probably have some deep significance for one reason or another. But it's only if you go and stand on the left-hand side of the painting. I don't know this whether this works for you uh, on your screen at home this morning. But if you go and stand on the left-hand side of the painting, suddenly that white object in the foreground, you realise, is actually a skull. And people for years and years have been speculating as to why it is that Holbein mysteriously painted that skull which you could only see from that perspective. And the thing is, once you've seen it, you can't really go back. You can't unsee its significance. And this morning, my question to you is, what if I suggested that there is something hidden in plain sight at the heart of Christianity? Something that is terribly significant, but which it is very easy for us not to notice. Well, we're continuing our journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and this section begins with a kind of crescendo. There are these four amazing ifs, each of them communicating great truths about the Christian faith and aspects of what it is to live as a Christian disciple. If you're united with Christ, if you have comfort from his love, If you're living this common sharing in the spirit, if you have this tenderness and compassion, 
Well, this is quite a list, and it may be that you want to think for yourself today, well, do I identify uh, with this list? Do I see these characteristics in my own life of faith or my exploration uh, of faith? Because Paul is saying, if you have these four qualities, then make my joy complete. And I sometimes think it's good to ask ourselves the question at a point like this in a narrative, well, what would we instinctively answer with? What's the thing that we would think uh, we should say to Paul to make his joy complete? What would I, in my heart of hearts, write next? Because actually these instinctive answers can tell us quite a lot about uh, our own preconceptions or the things that really matter to us. So would your answer be, oh, well, it'll be about volunteering for a certain number of hours or giving a certain amount of money? Are you a person who kind of thrives on a a sort of tick box uh, mentality? Or perhaps you'd say this is all about serving the poor. That has to be God's ultimate uh, priority, the hallmark uh, of discipleship. Or perhaps you'd say, no, no, Paul will say, be filled with the Spirit, Let's have a few more spiritual fireworks around here. But Paul doesn't mention any of these things, important as they are. He says, make my joy complete, and I'm reading now, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, Value others above yourselves, looking not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And so this lifelong adventure that we call the Christian faith, it's not just about what we believe, though that's important. It's not just about our decision to log on to services like this. It's not just even about our personal lives of prayer or our private study of the Bible. It's not even just about how we spend our money or our time, though yes, all of these things are important. But Paul is saying, make my joy complete by making this love of Christ visible in the way that you relate to each other. And appropriate Christian humility modeled on Jesus himself then follows from this. In other words, for Paul, writing to this young church, it's not just what you're believing, it is who you are becoming that becomes so significant. And too often, I think, this character formation aspect of the Christian faith, who we are, as well as what we believe, can get downplayed. And yet Paul is saying when we begin to live this unity to which the church is called, and when we live that with the same humility as Jesus, then we are really learning to be faithful. At the beginning of chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul names two women and urges them to be of the same mind in the Lord. Perhaps the church at Philippi had developed two destructive factions over a particular issue. The fact is that across the New Testament, there is this consistent call for Christians to live together in loving unity. And I think it's a call that over the centuries and around the world, the church 
consistently sets on one side. Consistently saying, no, 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 there are other things that are far more important, as if unity doesn't really matter that much. But then surely when reading this passage this morning, we have to ask the question, what does Paul say will make his joy complete? And it's not just Paul, by the way. For me, one of the most significant verses spoken by Jesus is at John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if, and again, it's quite a good verse to ask that question, what do we think he should really have said there? If you love one another. Jesus is saying in a totally matter-of-fact way, people outside the church will notice that you are following me if you love each other. There is a key to mission actually in that verse. Note that it's not just if you love your neighbor. We know that the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us that our neighbor can be anyone and everyone in need. But Jesus, at that point in John's Gospel, says, people will know who you are because of your love for one another. And to be perfectly honest, quite often when I hear Christians talking in public, debating this or that on social media, on the radio, it's as if Jesus and Paul didn't have much to say at all about this kind of loving unity. But for Paul... In our passage today, this is how our connection with Christ himself is deepened and made meaningful. If we discover this unity to which we are called in our everyday interactions within the church, as well as on a broader scale, then we will also be able to live this humility modelled on Jesus. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then our passage enters into this beautiful hymn, perhaps written by Paul or perhaps already part of the worship of the church to which he was writing, giving this wonderful distillation of the purpose of Jesus taking the form of a servant and being humbled even to the point of death on the cross. This is the humility that rejects selfish ambition and vain conceit. It's the humility of the servant. The humility of not using his equality with God to his own advantage. And then the hymn celebrates the father's response to his son's humility, exalting Jesus to the highest place, giving him the name that is above every other name. And although my focus this morning is on these character traits that I believe should be at the very heart of who we are as Christians, this uh, claim about Jesus' name being above every other name is also really important, and I want to draw our attention to it. I have to say that uh, it's a verse that springs to mind often for me in relation to that jaunty hymn that I'm of a generation that we sang it quite a lot at primary school, you know, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. If we were all together, we would have a lovely sing-along at this moment. Uh, Simon is sitting at the back and was uh, itching to join in, but uh, we'll leave that for a future occasion. 
The trouble is, of course, that many uh, hymns help us to learn the significance uh, of a verse. Worship songs, too, of course. But that one, I wonder whether the kind of jaunty melody rather undermines the significance of the claim that's being made. But I do want to share with you this morning a story from my own experience, uh, a few years on from primary school, when the significance of this verse really came home to me. In my final summer uh, as an undergraduate at university, I had ended up in a particular Asian country in what turned out to be a relatively risky situation. And I ended up being asked to leave the house where I was staying uh, at zero notice, quite unexpectedly. And uh, as I was packing up, the man of the house came upstairs to the room I was in. And before I knew it, I realized that he was kind of recoiling like this um, to come and hit me. Um, Now, I'm a fairly mild-mannered kind of person. I haven't been in many such scrapes in my life, so this was rather unexpected, and humanly speaking, I simply didn't know what to do. But I found myself saying, and I say this advisedly because I really didn't feel as though there was much connection between brain and mouth at this point, but I found myself saying, in Jesus' name, please stop. And to my utter amazement, he literally leapt back across the room. Now, you will have to make uh, of that story what you do, but whenever this verse is read, I remember that moment. To be honest, uh, at that point in my faith, I barely had the belief to believe that Jesus' name really was above every other name, and yet, in desperation, I called on his name, and there was an extraordinary power visible Uh, there, right in front of my eyes. And we're going through prolonged dark times, not just a moment of crisis. But I wonder whether for you this morning, this is a time again to rediscover what it is to call on the powerful name of Jesus and to see the kind of transformation that can come in your life. As we've already been hearing beautifully from Wayne this morning, what it is to put your trust in a power above every and any other power. Because this is the power at the heart of God. This is the power of the resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit at work, the power invoked when the name of Jesus is called upon. His name really is, I believe, above every other name, And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And we can step into this life. We can know this power. And if we are interested in becoming more recognizably Christian, if we're interested in, as Paul puts it, making his joy complete, It is this power which will turn us from the selfish, angry, bitter, you fill in the words for yourself, kind of people that we often are, and turn us into the people who seek the needs of others above ourselves, seek unity, and try and live with the humility of Christ. We can't just make a decision to become more Christ-like. We need to invite this power of the Holy Spirit into our lives. And this is about recognizing that our faith, therefore, isn't just about 
what we believe or how we pray or how we worship or the regularity with which we read our Bibles, important as all these things are, it's also about noticing what it is that Paul says makes his joy complete. Us becoming people who are recognizably more Christ-like. In the painting in the National Gallery, the skull is hidden in plain sight. And to be honest, when I look around the church, I sometimes wonder, why have we lost track of this call to love our neighbor, including within the church, and to see this transformation of character as being a really key part of the Christian life? We're called to love others inside the church, to be united with them, to be humble, because this is the very thing that Paul says will make his joy complete. In a moment, we're going to worship again. The band are going to come up uh, and lead us. But I want to finish with a prayer that is prayed Every morning at Lambeth Palace, the home historically and still today of the Archbishop of Canterbury, there is a religious community there run ecumenically across the divides within Christianity, which are often so deep and so painful. And so as we prepare to consider our own response, I'm going to pray this prayer. But I invite you this morning to consider What is it that actually needs to change in your life, just as it does in mine, to make Christ more visible? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, who prayed that we might all be one, we pray to you for the unity of Christians. According to your will, according to your means. May your spirit enable us to experience the suffering caused by division, to see our sin, and to hope beyond all hope. Amen.